as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. And he said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. To yet another, he said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go home and say farewell to my family. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Are you following Jesus? Am I following Jesus? It's a basic but profound question that stands at the center of all scripture and certainly stands here at the end of Luke chapter 9. Are you following Jesus? You see, for my first five years as a Christian, I wasn't following Jesus. What I mean by that is I had had a conversion experience. I had been saved. I was destined for eternal life with God in Christ because I had received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But for the first five years, let's be honest, I wasn't really following. I was in charge. I allowed Jesus to be just a part of my life, but not really give him the reins and lead. 25 years ago, I became a Christian. Only 20 years ago did I become a follower of Jesus. It happened in conjunction with our wedding. Uh, we were only married, Monica and I, about three or four months. And there I sat on the floor in the living room of our new apartment. And I was miserable, not miserable about our marriage, but miserable about church, about God, about everything going on in the church. And Monica turned to me, my new bride, and said to me, when are you going to stop complaining about everything wrong in the church and go to seminary so you can lead one? <laughs> and I said, I'm never going to seminary because let me remind you what you said to me four years ago when we started dating. You said to me, and I quote, I will never be a pastor's wife. And she said, I never said that. I said, you did. I remember where we were standing when you said it. Because as a side note, when you resist the call of God, he has a tendency to sort of impress that on your memory. I said, I can remember when you said it. And she said, well... I don't remember saying it, and it's not true anyway. You know this is the calling of God on your life, so why aren't you following that calling? See, when we look at these three individuals that meet Jesus on the road here at the end of Luke chapter 9, if you'll turn there with me, beginning at verse 57, we see these three individuals who are being faced with the same question. Will I follow Jesus? I've heard something about him. I really like him. 
but am I going to follow him and let him take the reins in my life? And by the way, let's be really clear. Following Jesus is not a one-time event. Following is something that happens each and every day. The decision again to follow. See, following Jesus, as we see here at the end of Luke chapter 9, will include, first of all, a call. God will call us to himself. It must be initiated by God. A sinful, broken human being needs God's call into their life to pull them out of that brokenness into this new life with Jesus. But not only does following require a call, it requires a conversion. And I don't mean a moment. I mean it means a full conversion, step by step. Every piece of our lives being converted from self-orientation to a God orientation, a full orbed piece by piece conversion. But not only does following require a call from Jesus and his converting work in our lives, but following Jesus also involves a cost. There's a cost that must be counted. See, first, following Jesus means a call. Verse 59, these simple words from Jesus, he says, follow me. I mean, they're simple, but they're profound words. These are the words that a rabbi would say to a potential student, a potential disciple. Come and follow me as your rabbi. Come and learn my ways. Be my student. Be my apprentice. But what's interesting as we read these three call stories here at the end of Luke 9, and as we read really all the other call stories in the Gospels, Jesus sounds like much more than just a rabbi. His call is much more than a mere rabbi's call. Even here in these stories, for example, the first man, we see that Jesus is placing his call above practical needs. Verse 58, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' call is saying that even your practical, sensible needs are below this most important calling. He places his call above practical needs. He places his call above religious observance, even good religious observance. The second man in verse 59, let me go bury my father. Let me bury my father. For an Israelite, this was an obligation to bury their father. I just said bury. <laughs> bury, not bury. It goes back and forth a little bit. I'm bilingual. I'm forgetting how to speak English. I've been here so long. Berries are on a tree. You pick them, bury someone in the ground. I am becoming Texan. Jesus is saying that his call is above religious observance. This obligation of an Israelite to bury his father, Jesus says, my call is above even that. And finally, with the third man, Jesus places his call upon just reasonable basic requests. Let me go home, the third man, it says, and say goodbye to my family. And what's interesting is this call to want to go back and say goodbye to his family is actually a biblical call. If you think back to 1 Kings chapter 19 with Elijah and Elisha, 
When Elijah, the great prophet, called Elisha to be his successor, Elisha says the exact same thing in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 20. He says, let me go back before I follow you and kiss my father and mother. And Elijah lets him go back and kiss his father and mother. But Jesus says, no. Anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is elevating his call above the Elijah-Elisha call in Scripture. All of a sudden, we begin to understand what Martin Hengel means when he says, Jesus' call sounds not like a rabbi at all, but it sounds like Yahweh himself calling Abraham and Moses. The call that Jesus is placing on these men's lives and the call that he places on our lives is not the mere call of a rabbi. It is the call of God Almighty, come to me and live. The challenge is that we don't always feel this way, do we? We often feel like when we come to God that it's been something we've come up with the idea of. Oh, I I woke up one day and I just thought I I should go Search for God. Remember all those seeker-sensitive services back in the 80s and 90s, right? It was all about the seekers who's seeking God. Well, the reality is the Bible tells us that God is the great seeker of us. God is the one reaching out and calling us. The Bible tells us that we are so broken and so turned inward on ourselves that unless the call comes from God himself, we will never be drawn out of our sin to him. As Romans 8, 7 says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But his call and his call alone can call a miserable offender, a miserable sinner to himself. That's the power of that call. I think of One of my favorite call moments from the Chronicles of Narnia sort of describes many of our experiences who came out of atheism into faith. Trumpkin the dwarf uh, is one of my favorite characters in Prince Caspian. In the Chronicles of Narnia, you have um, the Aslan, the the lion, Jesus figure in C.S. Lewis's gospel telling. And Trumpkin the dwarf, throughout the whole book, has never seen a lion And he doesn't believe in Aslan. He doesn't believe in any kind of lions. And at the end of the book, Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion shows up. And this is what Lewis says. And now, said Aslan in a much louder voice, with just a hint of a roar in it. And now, where is this little dwarf, this famous swordsman and archer who doesn't believe in lions? Come here, son of earth, come here. And this last word was no longer the hint of a roar, but almost the real thing. The children who knew Aslan well enough to see that he liked the dwarf very much were not disturbed, but it was quite another thing for Trumpkin, who had never seen a lion before, let alone this lion. He did the only sensible thing he could have done. That is, instead of bolting, he tottered towards Aslan. Do you hear him calling to you today? 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He calls broken people to himself, and that's where following must begin. But not only does he call us, and oh, the grace and the glory that he would call one such as us, But then there's a conversion that must happen. Following Jesus means conversion, and specifically conversion from self. Having the whole of me converted away from myself towards God. Verse 62, to the third man, he says, No one who sets a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Not fit for the kingdom of God. But fear not, the Greek word there, doesn't mean moral fitness. It just means aptitude, ability, just not fit. Natural, sinful human beings are not fit for the kingdom of God. We're not fit to follow Jesus as we are. Following Jesus isn't something where you can just wake up one day and go, all right, I've decided to follow Jesus and everything is going to stay the same. No, you're not fit to follow Jesus. But thanks be to God, Jesus is in the business of making those who are unfit to follow him fit to follow him. This is the work he does. It's the work of conversion, of transformation, not just a moment of conversion, but a lifetime of conversion, one step at a time, more and more of me converted to become like him, fit to follow, fit for his kingdom. I remember my brother Philip demonstrating uh, this idea of going from being unfit to fit. Uh, when he came back from basic training. Uh, My youngest brother had gone off to basic training, and, uh, you know, I'd always been the older brother. He was tough as nails as a kid, but I was always older, and I always won the wrestling matches. I could always use my weight and my skill to get around him and get him in the headlock, and it was over. And then he came back from basic training, and this boy was fit. And we were in the backyard of my parents' house having a barbecue, and we were doing what brothers who love each other do all the time. We were making fun of each other. And finally, it was enough, and I said, I'm done with this, and I ran across the back grass and jumped onto my brother, and something happened that had never happened before. In a millisecond, I was pinned with my face to the grass in a chokehold, unable to breathe. And to add insult to injury, then I listened to my wife and my mother begging my brother for my life. (laughs) And I realized in that moment, something has changed about this kid. He is fit. He was fit because, of course, he'd had a conversion of sorts, an army conversion. He'd gone off into the military, and he'd given over his way of doing things to the army way. He ate the way he was told. He exercised and trained the way he was told. He was converted in his physical body and mind into a soldier. He was now fit. But for us who are called to follow Jesus, there is a much more profound conversion that takes place. We who are unfit for following, we who are unfit for the kingdom, he is in the process of transforming us and making us converting our hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies into his service. And of course, it's, it's 
so hard for a human being to go through this conversion process. Because all of a sudden, we believe the words of John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Do you hear what connects with that? You're not the way, you're not the truth, and you're not the life. This is what is being presented to the would-be follower of Jesus. Will you surrender to my way and my wisdom in this world? Will you be converted step-by-step step completely into my way and my wisdom for living in this world and this kingdom? It's like C.S. Lewis saying, the real son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live human being. The part of you that does not like it is the part that is still tin. This is a full life conversion. Which, of course, is why discipleship is the exact opposite of self-help. Right? We live in a world and a culture that is full of self-help. Anything you think is, that is wrong in your life, you can simply get onto Amazon and find the newest book or the newest fad or the newest solution and you can apply it to yourself and you can fix your life. But the problem is, that if you've been down that self-help route far enough and a number of times, you start to realize that the problem is that you yourself are not good enough, objective enough, disciplined enough, wise enough to actually assess what's broken within you and fix it yourself. And suddenly when you come to that place, and instead you meet Jesus, then discipleship begins. Suddenly you meet Jesus and you look at his life and you see beauty and holiness and grace and sacrifice and wisdom. And if you're paying attention immediately in response to meeting this glorious one, you immediately distrust yourself and your opinions and your motivations and your cures. And in that moment, we are finally in the appropriate, humbled place to actually hear his words. Whoever would come after me must deny self, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus calls us, calls us to turn from self, which is killing us, and to turn to him. This is what the process of conversion looks like. But not only does following Jesus begin with his call to us, come to me. And not only does it mean a full-orbed conversion, day by day, daily taking up that cross, but it means ultimately counting the cost. See, all three of these people Jesus meets here in Luke 9 on the road are confronted with a cost if they follow Jesus. 
The first man in verse 58 is faced with the cost of comfort. The son of man is nowhere to lay his head. The second man is facing the cost of having to reorient his obligations. Let the dead bury the dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The third man in verse 61 is faced with the cost of obligations. See, following for Luke, if you look through his gospel, the word follow, when it's related to following Jesus, always, always, always includes a cost. Following has a cost, and Luke will often use the term a cross. The cost is understood as your cross. The cross required to be faced, to follow. I mean, you look at chapter 5 with the call of Levi, the tax collector. Jesus says, follow me. And Levi leaves everything and rose and followed him. Chapter 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Chapter 18, the rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And finally, at the end of chapter 18, Peter says, Lord, see, we have left everything to follow you. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a person, he bids that person to come and die. Take up your cross. There's a cost. But isn't Jesus also telling us to be counting the cost of not following him? Isn't Jesus also saying, count the cost of not following? Not just what you give up, but what you lose by not following See, in verse 60, Jesus slips the gospel right in the middle of this interaction. To the second man, his response, let the dead bury the dead. Do you hear what he's saying there? Do you hear the gospel in the midst of that phrase? Let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you do not follow me, you will stay dead. But instead, I'm calling you to go and pronounce and proclaim life. Jesus is saying to not take up this call and follow me is to stay spiritually and actually, ultimately, dead. As Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, that cornerstone of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive again together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up. In other words, at the center of the gospel is the reality that Jesus does not come and say, follow me for the sake of making bad people good. He comes to make dead people alive. This is what is at stake with the question of following Jesus. We measure the cost of what we lose, but do we measure the cost of not following Jesus? So often when we talk about the cost of discipleship, it sounds like moaning and groaning. Oh, look at all these wonderful things I had to give up in order to follow after the kingdom of God. 
But is it not, in fact, if we're honest, simply accounting the cost in kind of a cost-benefit kind of transaction? Okay, let me look at the cost, and then we look at the glory of what's being offered to me. Life. Death or life. Yes, there is a loss that we experience as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, but it is nothing in comparison with what we gain as we take up our cross and follow him. There is a cost to not following that is so much greater than the cost to following. As Dallas Willard says, when we count the cost, it leads us not to moaning and groaning, but instead to decisiveness and joy at what Jesus is offering us. When Annabelle was born, our eldest, I had to get rid of my sports car. My 1986 Honda Prelude, two doors, pop-up lights. It was my tribute to the 80s. But the car seat wouldn't fit in the back seat. So we had to trade in my sports car for the ugliest four-door sedan you could imagine. It was awful. It was an awful-looking car. And so, so many of my friends were like, oh, you're trading your sports car in. That must be so hard. Hard? I didn't think about it for a minute. Trading a sports car in? We were having a baby. The joy of what is laid before us is so much infinitely greater than what we would lose in the process. Let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. For as Jesus says in verse 25 of the same chapter, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Are you following Jesus? Are you still following Jesus? Am I? Following Jesus will mean a call from God. That's the only way that a sinful person can be drawn into this relationship. God called you in grace alone. But following Jesus means a conversion. Everything is going to change. Fits for the kingdom of God. And following Jesus will have a cost, but not just a negative cost. Remember the cost of not following. Luke doesn't tell us what happens to these three men. It's kind of a brilliant way to end it. We don't know, did they follow? Did they walk away? And I think he does it on purpose because it directs the question back to you and me, the hearers. What would we do? What will we do. So much of our stress and our misery comes from trying to resist his call to follow him. Today, he is calling. In this service today, through word and sacrament, he is calling you for the first time, or he's calling you afresh. Do you hear? his voice over your life? Do you hear the promise 
Do you hear that call that you cannot resist? Stop resisting. Stop fighting. And in repentance and faith, give in to that call he gives you in love. Follow me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.